Hello, and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Kristen Hayes. Today, I'll be talking with Rodney Rowland, who's the Director of Facilities and Environmental Sustainability at Strawberry Bank Museum in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. If you're not familiar with Strawberry Bank, never fear, Rodney's going to tell us all about it. You'll note that Rodney's title has two parts, and it's his focus on environmental sustainability that we'll largely be discussing today. And in particular, how do properties like Strawberry Bank, which is rich in history, but very place-based, contend with the risks posed by climate change? We'll be talking about sea level rise, historic preservation, and how institutions big and small are making plans to safeguard their treasures for the future. Stay with us. Hi, Rodney. Welcome to Resources Radio. It's very nice to talk with you. Nice to be here. Thank you. Of course. So let's start with a little bit about you. And I wanted to ask if you can tell our listeners a bit more about your history with Strawberry Bank and how you eventually came to take up the environmental sustainability mantle there. I can. Uh, Strawberry Bank is very much uh, a part of me, a part of who I am. Um, I was a volunteer working uh, with my parents here way back in the 1970s. Um, later on, uh, I took an internship here while I was still in college, uh, and then was fortunate enough to get my first job here back in 1990. So I've been at Starry Bank for over 30 years, held various roles, uh, including, a uh, object conservator for our World War II grocery store, uh, to collections manager, uh, and to, uh, and then eventually uh, moving over to the facilities department where I am now. Uh, in charge of um, the 32 historic structures that we have on our nine-acre site, so it's a it's a it's a very much a part of who I am and something I very strongly believe in. Um, and I think a lot of that is because I have been here so long, and I also saw my parents toiling uh, on the grounds of Strawberry Bank to make sure that it um, survived uh, through many of the challenges uh, that it has faced. Uh, my most recent challenge is um, uh, the sustainability of Strawberry Bank in terms of keeping the water out. We're under siege from below and from above, and um, we're seeing impacts to our historic structures already that we've never seen before. We've lost some history, which we'll be talking about. Um, but so I, I have uh, picked up the torch of what's called our Sea Level Rise Initiative in hopes that uh, we can um, we could get a victory against the increasing water levels. Okay. All right. Well, um, I gave a, an exceptionally brief introduction to Strawberry Bank, and you mentioned a little bit more about it as you were introducing yourself, but I, I'd love to get a better mental picture of the site itself, um, what the museum's all about, and kind of the scope. You mentioned some buildings, some structures. There's clearly a lot to it. So can you tell us more about the site? Absolutely. Um, Strawberry Bank is unique in the museum world. Um, many of your listeners may be used to things like Sturbridge or Williamsburg, um, which are what are called outdoor living history museums. Uh, they're basically a created village, if you will, of historic structures with, uh, with streets and landscapes, historic landscapes. What sets Strawberry Bank apart is we are using an actual neighborhood that was uh, first used by the Abenaki uh, Native Americans uh, before European settlement. Uh, and then was settled by the Europeans in 1623 because it has a lovely safe harbor. Uh, and they happened to find strawberries growing on the banks of the Piscataqua River, which is where we got our name and what the town of Portsmouth was originally called by those settlers um, for the first couple decades of European settlement. 
Um, so we're using this actual neighborhood. These buildings are on their original foundations. So as you walk the streets uh, that have been here for hundreds of years and see the buildings that have been here from hundreds of years, um, each building is set to a different time period in the evolution of the neighborhood. And it gives you an idea of how this neighborhood in New England has evolved over 300 plus years of existence. Um, so that kind of makes us uh, unique and special. And the fact that we do all of American history. So a lot of museums will pick a, a year or a decade or a few decades. We uh, talk about the, how the Abenakis used the site. We have a, a recreated wigwam uh, on our site, all the way up to a 1955 cold water apartment in what was a duplex at the time. And then everything in between, a, a sea captain's home, a, a widow's home, a, a uh, 1919 Jewish immigrant uh, home. So it's uh, fu really fun to see how uh, this neighborhood and and sort of by default, uh, how America changed through time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that is really interesting. So uh, just as an aside, I went to the College of William Mary, which is in Williamsburg, Virginia. So that is, of course, the mental image that I had. And so it's good. I'm, I'm completely fascinated by this idea of sort of a neighborhood across history. I think... Um, yeah, that does sound like quite a quite an innovation, quite a thing to see. Just a little bit more about the size. How many structures are we talking? What sort of acreage are we talking? Um, yeah. How big? We have 32 historic structures on a nine-acre site. Uh, so we basically take up one entire city block. Uh, we're surrounded by four city streets. Um, there are a couple of new structures, obviously, that we sort of used as support. But uh, there are 32 historic structures on our site. And all but four of them are in their original locations. Fantastic. All right. So when you think about environmental sustainability at a historic site like this one, obviously we're going to get to the, the sea level rise issues, but I wanted to give you a chance to just reflect a little bit more broadly on kind of the suite of issues that you are thinking about when you're thinking about environmental sustainability there. What's the range? Well, I think it's it's a very broad range. I mean, we... Certainly our focus right now is on water issues, sea level rise uh, related issues um, are at the foremost. But as a member of a community uh, and a community of larger communities, uh, we look at things like recycling and how we can limit our energy use, um, how we can um, especially educate these particular issues to our public. Uh, we have uh, we're in a unique situation that we have an audience of over 100,000 people a year, uh, all age groups, families. And so what we can put out there for a message um, will get to people. And so uh, we partner with people like the city of Portsmouth who have their own message about how you can uh, protect and minimize stormwater. Uh, and so when they wanted to have a way to give that message to the public, we said, we can be your voice uh, because we have a big audience. So we're kind of using ourselves as a stage to tell not only the things that are important to Strawberry Bank, but also some of the issues that are facing um, this community of Portsmouth and the larger uh, community of the United States and the world. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, that's that's a really helpful grounding. But as you note, of course, the biggest issue under discussion today is uh, the threats posed by climate change, and in particular, rising water levels. And you and I actually corresponded a little bit before our recording today um, about what I found to be a fascinating article in the New York Times from a few weeks back about the Smithsonian Museums here in Washington, D.C., and the challenges that facilities and collection managers are facing as water levels rise and as flooding increases. Uh, it sounds like Strawberry Bank is, is facing some of those challenges, too. So 
So can you say just a little bit more about what you're seeing, what you're experiencing, and, and what you're likely to deal with in the future? I can, Kristen. I mean, you start with the basic fact that the oldest parts of uh, New England, the oldest parts of America, the oldest parts of the world are on the coast. They're on the water because the people that live there needed the water for transportation and they needed the water for a source of food. And a lot, as we know, a lot of those areas were later claimed waters. They were filled in by European settlers, by whomever. And so all of these places are now at the highest risk from rising sea levels. Portsmouth, just by example, is on the beautiful Piscataqua River. And, but our, our, our dearest historic house is 450 feet away. Um, if it's not directly impacted by uh, flooding from the Piscataqua River, which it's not, what we're seeing is the river is now pushing that water underground and into the basements of our buildings, which of course have been there for two, three, four hundred years. So, you know, it, it's not unique to us. Uh, we just happen to have some incredible, um, time-lapse photography showing it. We are uh, talking about it more and more and more to a bigger audience. Um, but as you pointed out, the Smithsonian has now come out that they're having these issues. And uh, there's also a museum in Jakarta that's having the same thing. Their maritime uh, museum is under siege from rising groundwaters. And again, it's all related to being on the coast, uh, where you see some of the most precious uh, parts of our culture and of the world's culture. So it's a problem. Yeah, I did notice. I I was actually up in Boston this past weekend, once again, and um, I, I noticed in the middle of a, a walk around kind of central Boston that there was a line that I'd never noticed before, a line sort of drawn in the bricks, noting where the historical shoreline would have been in 1620. And <laughs> wow. I'd never seen it before, but we're sort of walking along and I happened to look down and there it was. It, I found it completely fascinating because it, it was such a kind of unique illustration of the reclamation of land that you're talking about and the ways that... Um, that we've changed the landscapes that might actually be making us more vulnerable now. Yeah, you know? yeah. So, yeah. People don't think about it. There's a huge field uh, in the center of Strawberry Bank. And, and a lot of people, when they come to museums, they think, oh, a big field. That must have been the parade ground, you know, the sort of green. In fact, it's it's a two or three acre tidal inlet that was filled in by the city of Portsmouth in about 1903. And that is certainly contributing to the issues that we're seeing today because that tidal water is still coming in and out underground. Mm -hmm. Just because you can't see it didn't it mean it went away. And so, uh, again, as it's you know being impacted more and more by uh, storms and astronomical high tides, you know, they just filled in that land with what they thought was good enough. And perhaps after all these centuries, it's no longer good enough. So, mm -hmm. Yeah, interesting. So another another thing I wanted to ask you about um, in this Smithsonian article, one of the or the New York Times article about the Smithsonian, I should say, um, they had some fascinating maps showing which of the Smithsonian facilities are, are kind of likely to be most at risk, um, where flooding risk is greatest. And I found myself wondering uh, and looking at the footnotes, if you will, to see what data sources they had used on what data were they basing these these mapping exercises and how were they getting that granular about understanding the risks to different facilities? So I wanted to ask you that question. Um, when you, as the facilities manager, are thinking about the risks to, you know, different historical buildings, which ones might be most threatened? How did you how did you begin to map that out in more detail? Obviously, beyond what you're already seeing with your own eyes, but are there are there data sources that were available to you, local, national? I'm really curious how you begin to map that out. Sure. 
I mean, there's really two parts to this question. Um, the first is that if you watch the news uh, any given time, you see stories of flooding or you'll see weather reports that say uh, we're expecting a flood tide. So there's lots of work both on the federal level and on the state level to understand um, tide depths and where areas of impact, where areas of low elevation can be impacted as the tides change due to either storm surge or, or uh, astronomically high tides or king tides. So, we're, and we're talking about surface flooding. So that's where, um, you know, the tide just comes over the wall, the bank, whatever it happens to be in your particular area and begins to impact areas that it hasn't impacted before or is, doesn't impact very often. So there's that, and there's, there's quite a bit of data on that because people have been studying that for decades. So then you have to get to um, the, the, the other side of it, which is groundwater intrusion. Uh, and so the theory here is that um, bodies of water, uh, whether it be the Atlantic Ocean or rivers, uh, are um, under a higher amount of pressure, again, through astronomically high tides or storm surges. And that water is pushing underground and um, causing upwelling of the groundwater tables. Everybody is pretty familiar with groundwater, especially if they're on a well. Well, what's happening, of course, is that this is this pressure is rising the water up, and now the lowest parts of their home, which is typically the basements, are entering an area where they're at risk. Um, and even if they're not seeing water, it could be that the soils under their um, home are getting wetter and wetter more frequently. And so they're getting that smell of damp, that high humidity levels in their basement. And so that's the other impact related to sea level rise. And so to your question, are is there some data? Well, there are some projections, but it's very, very difficult to understand the impacts of groundwater because there's so many variables. And uh, one of the things that we're going to have to do here and other communities are doing is uh, drill down some wells and install salinity and water height uh, instruments that will send real-time data back to uh, a monitor so that we can see how the groundwater is moving over a year or two years. And that's a partnership that we're doing with the University of New Hampshire Geospatial Lab. Um, they're going to buy the sensors and install them, and then they'll help us collect this data. And actually, we're going to output that data into our gallery space for our visitors to see as well. Wow, that sounds very fascinating. I, I definitely want to talk a little bit more about the solutions or the kind of steps that you're taking to make sure that you understand the problems and also ameliorate potential problems. But really quickly, I just wanted to ask first, are there particular buildings on this, you know, in the, the collection of 32 buildings that you're particularly worried about at this point? Are there ones that you've been able to identify from either the, you know, the flooding or the groundwater that you know you need to pay special attention to? Absolutely. Uh, unfortunately, the oldest buildings we own are the ones closest to what was that tidal inlet what was known as Puddle Dock. And so uh, you have buildings like the 1795 Shapley Driscoll House, uh, the 1695 Sherburn House, the 1710 Peter Loud House. These are all on what was the waterway and um, they're seeing constant uh, impacts from groundwater and uh, to a certain degree, surface water flooding as well. Um, as you come up from that waterway, fortunately elevation increases uh, and so therefore the impacts decrease. Um, so we, we do have that going in our favor. Yeah. Well, something I thought about a lot that was, that's kind of um, not unique, but certainly very relevant for a place like Strawberry Bank is how place-based the history is too. It's not like you can, 
well, I mean, I suppose maybe there are some of the buildings that you could move. As you noted, there are some that are not in their original places. But what makes it so special is that you are taking this neighborhood that's been where it is for so long and and you know building in place there. And so um, there's a very place-based element to it, which means that sort of just moving the collections or moving things like that would really lose a lot of the character of the site. So so in reality, you're, the challenges that you face, you really have to work kind of in the ecosystem that you have. Is that a fair characterization? It yeah. a- absolutely is, Kristen. And everything, this site is very site-specific. And like I mentioned, it's one of the things that makes us unique. Our roads are on their original locations. Um, wh- what we find for fence lines or uh, privy outbuildings or gardens uh, are all found archaeologically, and they're on their same locations. If we were to uh, pick up a building and move it or, you know, elevate it, you have completely lost the context for which Strawberry Bank was created. Uh, and indeed, Strawberry Bank was created through the Housing and Urban Development Program. Um, they were going to bulldoze the entire site and instead uh, used historic preservation as a way to teach American history. So they wanted to preserve the neighborhood as a way to teach history. And so, yeah, we need to preserve that just like we do anything else. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. So you're not, <laughs> we're going to keep Strawberry Bank just where it is. And <laughs> you talked about some of the solutions. Solutions might be more optimistic than perhaps I can uh, claim. But nonetheless, you're looking for ways to understand what's happening in order to kind of uh, address the challenges you're facing. So beyond the monitoring program that you mentioned, the groundwater monitoring program, are there other types of uh, data collection or, or dare I even say solutions that you're considering? <laughs> there are. Um, so when it comes to um, the surface water issues, um, and I should just expand on that a little bit, um, Strawberry Bank is pretty much like the bottom of a bowl, and we're located in the south end of Port Smith and the neighborhood to our south is higher than us and the business district or the downtown district to our north is also higher than us and everything drains down to Strawberry Bank Museum. Um, so we have a great issue with surface water flooding especially as we get these bigger torrential downpours. So what we're going to do with that is we're going to conduct what's called a master planning study to understand where that water's coming from, to understand things, how things like our uh, huge visitor parking lot are impacting those problems because it sheds a huge amount of water. Uh, we're going to look at the city stormwater system and see what's, you know, when it was put in, uh, how big it is. And we're going to begin to look at ways that we can probably manage that surface water until such a time that the tide in the Piscataqua River goes out and it lets us release that water into the river, because that's where it would go anyway. Um, so that's sort of the surface water approach. Uh, how can we store that? Maybe rain gardens. Uh, maybe um, we could do some, uh, create what was a coastline, since this was actually a tidal inlet. Maybe we can recreate that somehow and have those plants working to collect and store that water rather than uh, having encroaching on our historic properties. Um, and then you look at each one of our houses individually when it comes to groundwater intrusion and uh, the severity of that groundwater impact dictates what we need to do. Um, uh, For an example, the Joshua Jones house, which is probably a thousand feet from the banks of the Piscataqua River, uh, is one of the heavily impacted buildings, but 
um, it is far enough away that the severity is not as bad as it is, say, in the Sherburn house uh, or the Shapley Driscoll house. The Jones house had a couple of problems. One, it had um, surface water flooding coming through at the bulkhead, the historic bulkhead, uh, which would act like a waterfall and fill up the basement. And then it had some minor groundwater intrusion. By simply changing the elevation of that bulkhead, we can now let the water pond around that structure and not impact the basement. Uh, then we put in a, a commercial dehumidification system in the basement, which will trigger when uh, humidity levels get over 60% and dry out the space much more rapidly than otherwise would happen. And that's been very successful. I'd say that building is pretty much set for now. Um, as you get closer to the river, it gets a little bit harder. The Loud House um, is a beautiful structure that has a large center chimney. Um, it used to have what was called a summer kitchen in the basement. That was where the original owners would cook in the summertime when it was hot. There was a, a, an open hearth. That had been so compromised by uh, decades of salt water uh, saturating the brick um, that we had to make the decision to remove it and not put it back and instead put a granite base on the chimney. The granite does not wick salt water. And so we've preserved the rest of that chimney from further deterioration, but we have lost that piece of history. Uh, and I think as we go on to the Sherburn House and the Shapley Driscoll House, which are even closer to the river and seeing huge impacts on a monthly basis, you're going to find that we're going to likely lose more history. I would venture to say the Shapley Driscoll House is uh, the basement will probably be filled in with concrete and we will set that building on the pad. I think that's probably what we're going to have to do. Hmm. Interesting. So it sounds like it's a combination of um, some technology, some sort of modern technology, <laughs> like the dehumidifying system, yep. um, some combination of maybe, is it fair to call it natural infrastructure, things that would, um, you know, things that would allow a recreation of sort of natural ways of controlling water. Yes. And then maybe some, you know, in, in grand terms, kind of managed retreat where some of these things that are not going to be able to be preserved as they are, are going to, they're going to be replaced with things that are a little bit different. Is that? That is a fair statement. We are, yeah. as a museum, we are, um, we try to adhere to the Secretary of Interior Standards for Historic Preservation. And those standards have literally changed every year as the National Park Service has tried to grapple with the impacts of water on historic sites. And one of the things that they have agreed is that if you need to lose a piece of history that really isn't visible, uh, that has very little impact on the historic streetscape, like a basement, um, that's okay to do. Um, and, and I totally understand that. And I actually applaud those, those decisions because I, we can't do a, a band-aid fix. We're really going to have to do something that's going to last because this probably isn't going to get better before it gets worse. So, um, I think that's yeah. a good move. Hmm. All right. Well, I, I want to end with a question about, um, how you are, navigating this territory. It's a very uncertain future. Um, you've obviously put a tremendous amount of thought and care into thinking about Strawberry Bank. And I wonder sort of what, what resources are available to you, to other folks like you who are trying to sort of, again, navigate this uncertain future. Are there are there communities of folks like you who share knowledge and support each other? Are there funding sources available to take on some of these solutions? What's available to you to help you make sure this lasts? Well, I think one of the 
really the nicest thing that's come out of this maybe not so nice situation is that we have found some incredible partnerships, uh, partnerships that we never, ever would have had as a historic preservation site. We now have because we're a historic preservation site that's at risk from climate change. Um, so partnerships uh, like from the state of New Hampshire, uh, the Department of Environmental Services, from a, a coastal adaptation workshop group that's in New Hampshire. Um, these are all organizations that have been talking and, and preaching about sea level rise and climate change. Um, and now we've joined their voice to explain and show what those impacts can be. Um, so those, that's really great. And those organizations do have money. Um, they, uh, one of the great partnerships is with the city of Portsmouth. They get money from the environmental protection agency, um, to do various things around the city revolving around city infrastructure. And part of that funding has to be used for public outreach. And the city of Portsmouth, of course, doesn't really have a stage to do public outreach, but Strawberry Bank does. And so when they decided that they really wanted to begin to educate people on what stormwater is and how um, it, protecting it and minimizing stormwater is, is a good thing for the planet, um, they turned to Strawberry Bank and joined our uh, efforts to create an exhibition uh, called Preserving Strawberry Bank in the City of Portsmouth from Sea Level Rise. Um, they have a huge panel in there called Think Blue, What Can You Do? And it really just explains that water that goes down that drain, that storm drain in the road, is untreated water that's going into some body of water. And so be knowledgeable about what, what you're putting down that drain. Uh, try to minimize it. You know, maybe wash your car on the lawn, maybe put in a rain garden, maybe have a rain barrel on your gutter and use that water to water your plants. So things like that. Um, so that's a really great partnership. And then, of course, the, their funding uh, helped us do our, our gallery exhibit as well. Um, so that was really helpful. That exhibit is probably the third part of our Sea Level Rise initiative um, to just make sure that everything we learn in this process is publicly available uh, and can be taught because um, we're not going to be the only ones and we aren't the only ones that are going to go through this. So we want to be able to help others uh, navigate the waters, if you will. <laughs> yeah, quite literally, as the case may be. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Oh. Fantastic. Ronnie, this has been so interesting. I really appreciate your sharing a little bit more about the site that you obviously love very much. Um, and just, yeah, setting, you know, sort of setting the stage for what I imagine will only be uh, more on the radars of folks who love to, to take advantage of sites like yours. So, um, so thank you. Thank you so much for, for sharing your wisdom with us. So let's close the podcast with our regular feature, Top of the Stack. Basically, this is your chance to recommend any more good content uh, with our audience. And I always feel it's important to note, you're welcome to recommend something related to what we're talking about, but you're also welcome to recommend something else that's of interest to you on a completely different topic, if that's what tickles your fancy. So what's on the top of your stack? Oh, I'm very excited about this opportunity. So <laughs> okay, um, very recently, I finished a book called White Pine, American History and the Tree that Made a Nation. Uh, the author's name is Andrew Vietz, V-I-E-T-Z-E. And um, th uh, that book is an incredibly unique way to look at American history through the eyes of the white pine, because of course the white pine was the reason that the settlers came here. And it was the reason why the King of England really didn't want to give up America because all those pines were really helpful for his uh, naval fleet and all the masts that they needed for those ships. And so you had this incredible resource that was wanted by everybody 
And so, you know, from my perspective, I, of course, I'm looking at it through climate change and realizing that here at the very beginning, as they clear cut these enormous white pines until there wasn't a single tree left, literally, um, how that might have impacted where we are today. And he doesn't just stop at, at looking at the colonial uh, look at how the white pine was used, but he takes it up into the 20th century when um, humankind was trying to preserve the eastern white pine and, and, and be a little bit more um, farm it sustainably, for example, when it's then hit by a European, uh, an Asian, sorry, Asian disease called the white pine blister rust. Um, which started to knock down the population. So it's a really great read, um, especially when you think of how our history might be contributing to the topics that we're discussing today. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's a great recommendation. Thank you so much. Sure. Well, again, it's been a real pleasure, and um, I hope to make it up to Strawberry Bank. That sounds like a wonderful site. So I guess I'll see you up there. I hope you come. It's a, it's a beautiful <laughs> spot, especially in the summertime. Fantastic. All right. Thanks, Rodney. Thank you. You've been listening to Resources Radio. Learn how to support resources for the future at rff.org support. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. Resources Radio is a podcast from Resources for the Future. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the podcast guests and may differ from those of RFF experts, its officers, or its directors. RFF does not take positions on specific legislative proposals. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson with music by Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.